turn back this morning to the book of Titus. As we continue our study through Paul's letter to Titus, we come to a fresh chapter this morning, but this fresh chapter is very much a continuation of some of the things that we've been studying lately, though it is, in a sense, a new topic for us to consider together. Being a continuation of the topic as we have been, or the context of what we have been studying, Paul is encouraging Titus to instruct the people that he preaches to each and every week that they would be mature in discipleship as followers of Christ, and as such, just to remind you of some things that we have studied over the past few weeks, grace brings salvation. And when grace brings salvation, this salvation given to us by God's grace teaches us some things, namely to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts and to look for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But at the same time, as we observe from the beginning of Titus chapter 2, though grace brings salvation and it teaches us some things, We stand in need of practical instruction so that we can grow in the grace and the knowledge of God. And so on one hand, grace brings salvation and salvation teaches us. But on the other hand, as people who are now now alive in Christ, we stand in need of practical instruction. And so despite Paul saying the grace of God that brings salvation hath appeared teaching... He also tells Titus in chapter 2 and verse 1, Speak thou the things which become or make beautiful and attractive and appealing sound doctrine that the congregation might be full of people wherein the aged are one way and the young are another way, the men and the woman, and so you have instruction to every demographic in the church. This is sparked in our hearts in the new birth, and yet we stand in need of practical instruction that we might know how to serve him, that we see in verse 14 of chapter 2, we would be a peculiar people, a peculiar people zealous of good work because we have been redeemed from all iniquity. And so we find this pattern throughout all of Paul's writings, but especially in Titus chapter 2, leading into Titus chapter 3, and in Titus chapter 3, God has changed us. And so because he has changed us, we're to be further instructed that we can live in a certain way. Now, to put it the way that Peter would put it in his writings, we've been saved by God's grace, and as people who are saved by God's grace, we're newborn babes, and as newborn babes, we need the milk of the Word that we might grow thereby. And so what we've read so far in Titus chapter 2 and what we will read today in Titus chapter 3 is very much that concept that God has saved us, and because God has saved us, We are different. Being people who are different, we need instruction from the Word of God to know how to be mature disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. To put it in another way, you cannot separate what God has done for us with what God expects of us. And so He has saved us for a reason. We need instruction from the Word of God each and every day of our lives that we can grow in the types of behavior that God would have us to be walking in. Now, our passage today is very, very needful to us at present as it speaks to a constant question 
in American life? How are we as disciples to interact with the powers that be? This is a relevant question. It is a timely subject. It is something that we need instruction in. It is something that if we take it to heart, I believe that it will answer questions that maybe some of you have about our present state of things in the United States, how it is that we are to respond to and interact with those who have the rule over us. Our message today will cover three basic areas of focus. Number one, our responsibility to rulers, what we are to do in response to them, what our responsibility is towards them. Number two, and I think all of your ears will tune in as we get to this portion, when is civil disobedience biblical? Because the Bible says some things about civil disobedience. And three, how we as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ go about actually enacting change in society. And it isn't what most American Christians believe that it is. So we'll give you that up front. Let's read the passage. Titus chapter 3. We'll read verses 1 through 7, and yet our study passages today are verses 1 and 2. Paul writes to Titus in Titus chapter 3, "...put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready to every good work, to speak evil of no man, to be no brawlers, but gentle." showing all meekness unto all men. Now, let me just pause right there in our reading. Is that not a statement that we need to hear in America today? Because that's not what you see on social media. It's not what lives on Twitter or under the bridge with all the trolls in the comment section of your local news station. To be gentle, no brawler, showing all meekness unto all men. That's a message that we need. That's what God expects of disciples as it relates to all men, but in particular... Who was his subject in the verse before, the powers that be? For we ourselves, why does Paul say this? We're sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving divers' lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But after that, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost, which He shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by His grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. There you have the pattern again. God has changed us, and because God has changed us, we are different, and as people who are different, here is the way that we should walk and grow in. But at the same time, we're to be different in the way that we interact with those who are around us in the world because we need to understand there was a day that we were no different than they are. There's a day that we were no different than Saul of Tarsus, a day we were no different in nature than the most evil of men in this world. Your Adolf Hitlers, your Genghis Khans, you name him, you name her, There's a day that we were no different than any of them. And the only thing that made a difference in my life and in your life is the grace of God that brought us salvation. 
When you understand that you are no better than anyone else, and by the grace of God, there go I, except for the grace of God, I would be exactly like the worst of humanity, changes your perspective. Paul would ask the question, where is boasting? It is excluded. Where is Phariseeism? It is excluded. Because I am by nature no different than the worst of mankind. And so any goodness that is in me is given to me of Christ. Any righteousness that I have was His that He gave me. I have no reason to judge any man because I am no different by, in and of myself by my nature than any man. It ought to change the way I view people around me in the world. But our focus today is on verses 1 and 2. Put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready to every good work, to speak evil of no man, to be no brawlers, but gentle, showing all meekness unto all men. The first of the three points that we want to consider today is our responsibility to those that are in positions of authority. This is fresh on our mind. We delivered a message last year when we were still having drive-in services from the front porch of Flint River Primitive Baptist Church on the subject of law enforcement and our responsibility to be subject to the powers that be. And we did that in response to a nation with major cities experiencing violent riots around this country. Do you remember that? Do you remember that message? The primary thought of that message was, number one, that the powers that be answer to God, and so they should curb their behavior to be in accord with what God says. And so if you're a soldier or a law enforcement officer or a judge or an elected official, God holds you accountable as the King of kings and Lord of lords, and He will judge, so beware. But at the same time, we who are under the authority of the powers that be ought to be respectful to those who are in positions of authority. We are to obey the law. We are to say, yes, sir, to police officers. We're to obey them when they say, stop, put your hands up, even if we're not guilty of a crime. I don't like it, and we'll see in just a moment what you can do about it. But the way that, the way that God has instructed us is very clear And these thoughts, again, are ones that we shared with you last year. Again, in our drive-in service that we had. Put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready to every good work. Scripture uses a variety of terms to describe government officials, but what we're learning about today are government officials. In Scripture, they're called rulers, Romans 13 is a passage that we'll turn to in a minute. Them that bear rule, and so they are rulers. Scripture also describes them, defines them, it calls them kings. We don't have kings in America. We have presidents and governors and mayors. We have Congress people. I'm not going to make comments about Congress. We have people that bear the rule over us in that sense. We refer to them as civil servants. We refer to them as elected officials. But in Scripture, they were called rulers and kings. They're called those in authority. They're called principalities, and we'll define that term for you momentarily. They're called powers. They're called governors, magistrates, and at times judges. But whether you're talking about a king, a ruler, a Caesar, a pharaoh, an Abimelech, 
Whether you're talking about a governor or simply a magistrate, Scripture speaks very definitively to our responsibility to those who have the power of secular government. Those who have what we might refer to as legal authority over us. As we think about legal authority over us, I want to emphasize that and go off script for just a moment. There are times that people who don't have legal authority want to have the authority over you, and you don't have to listen to a thing that they say. A few years ago, a gentleman came into my yard and screamed and yelled at me because of a vehicle I had parked at the curb that was running, had a tag, it had insurance, but it was uglier than the other vehicles at the curb, and so he threatened to put me in jail if I didn't move it. And my response to him was simply, this isn't North Korea I don't have to do what you say just because you tell me I'm not breaking a law and you don't have any authority to put me in jail to make laws up on the spot. And so I utilize my rights. And I filed a police report on him and told him to leave if, unless he wanted to go to jail because he was trespassing on my property. He didn't have that authority, and so I utilized my rights, which is something we'll talk about momentarily. But we're talking about those today who have legal authority over you. You know, if the mayor walks in and says, you have to do this or you have to do that, if it's not in accordance with the law, you don't have to do that because there's no legal precedent there. But if a police officer comes, they have the authority, and so we listen to what they say. We obey according to the authority, the law that is over us in the land. But even in disagreement, we are to be what? Gentle, showing meekness to all men. I told the fellow, I'm not mad at you, but... I don't have to do what you say just because you tell me if there's not a law that I'm violating, just, you know, you're no different than me. You know, the Hebrew boys, when they were, the Hebrew men, when they were fighting with each other and Moses interceded and said, why are you fighting your brethren? They asked him the question, who made you a Lord over us? Why do we have to do what you say? And the fact of the matter is they didn't have to do what he said. There are boundaries in the world and we need to understand scripture presents those and we respect those in the home in the workplace, in the church, and even among the powers that be. But this principle has reference to those who were in a position of legal authority over us. Breaking down verse 1, put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready unto all good works. We want to take, first of all, this verse, a statement at a time, and apply it and define it. What is the language in this verse telling us? First of all, put them in mind. Timothy, or Titus rather, you are a minister. Titus, you have the responsibility of standing before them and sharing the word of God with them. Encourage them, put them in mind to walk in this way. The preacher is to speak the things which become sound teaching. And again, the word become their means to make beautiful, to enhance, to make appealing, to make attractive. Titus... Put them in mind, encourage them to walk in this way. Now, there are ministers out there, and especially in the blogosphere and on social media, who put people in mind to do the exact opposite of that. And I would remind you that we are not called to be rebels as disciples of Christ. There are times that we disobey. We'll get there eventually today. But we are not rebels You know, the Jews thought in the first century that God was with them. And they led several insurrections. They rebelled. There was a faction among Judaism, the Zealots. You remember that one of the apostles was Simon Zelotes. Simon the Zealot. 
Simon belonged to a faction of Jews who believed that God wanted them to take up swords and absolutely run the Romans and their rule out of Judea. Eventually, those insurrections would begin to happen in reality, not merely in rhetoric. And what happened was God judged that nation largely for their rejection of Christ. And in those insurrections, they were wiped from the face of the earth. When the disciples saw armies surrounding the holy city, they knew the desolation was nigh. What did Jesus tell them to do in the Olivet Discourse when armies surrounded the city? Get out of there. Don't be a part of the rebellion. Don't be a part of the insurrection. If you're in there, you'll get judged with the rest of them. You will suffer with the rest of them. But when you see armies surround the holy city, know the desolation is nigh. Flee into the wilderness. He tells them when to get out of Jerusalem before it's judged. What led to that? One insurrection after another. Even in disagreement, we're to be respectful, and we are to put you in mind to be subject to principalities and powers and to obey magistrates. Put them in mind, Paul says. Help foster the mindset. The next statement, to be subject to, and this phrase subject means to live in submission to. We find this word used in the context of the Christian home. A wife is subject unto her own husband. Children are subject unto their parents. Husbands are subject unto Christ. This is the structure of authority. God has given authority in the world. He's given authority in the home, and he's given authority in the church. And we are to be subject to the proper authorities. For instance, this word subject is used in the Gospel of Luke with reference to 12-year-old Jesus obeying his parents. He was subject unto them. Same Greek word. He obeyed them. This word is also used, subject. When Jesus cast out devils, the devils were subject unto him. They obeyed him. They submitted unto him. You know, there's not an occurrence in the Bible of a devil that backtalked Jesus. We sometimes think of this colossal war between light and darkness, good and evil, maybe even considering the end of time, and we think there's going to be a war. Is God enough to win? And let me just tell you that the devils answered and said, yes, sir, every single time that Jesus commanded them. In fact, not only did they obey him, but when Jesus came to a man or a woman that was possessed with the devil, the devils cried out, torment us not before our time. The devils cried for mercy when Christ was around. Why? Because they were subject unto him. Jesus as a child is subject to his parents. The devils are subject unto Christ. And there were times that the devils were subject unto the apostles and the 70 that were sent out. Part of my Bible reading covered that this week when Jesus sends the 70 out to preached the gospel after he had sent the 12 apostles out to preach and to cast out spirits. And they come back rejoicing. Even the devils are subject unto us. And Jesus tells them, rejoice not that you have power over the devils. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. That's an amazing thing to think about. But the devils were subject unto Jesus and they were subject unto the apostles. And so we are to be subject unto the powers that be. Do you like that? So many times we don't. 
So many times I don't. Last night, there were a couple of law enforcement officers with a spotlight right at the warrior exit, and we drive by, and my cruise was set on 74, because you can get by with 74, and you can't get by with 79, and so I'm cruising at 74, heading back from that meeting that we were at yesterday. They have the spotlight shining on people as they go by, and kind of curious why they'd be shining spotlights to see what the driver looked like, and the next thing I know, he pulls out behind me, and we go about a mile down the road, and the blue lights turn on, and I'm starting to get a little annoyed because I'm not doing anything terribly wrong, and I really want to get home, and they pull over some other guy. In North Carolina, I was in South Carolina in an inconspicuous silver Impala, and I'm cruising up in the speed limit, and I had this long beard, you know, because sometimes I have a long beard, and they pulled me over and said, you look like you were swerving in your lane. And I thought, you don't, you're not pulling me over because I'm swerving in my lane. You're pulling me over because I look like I'm running drugs. Anyway, I must not have looked like the guilty parties they were after. But I was annoyed with that, the thought of being pulled over, when I really want to just go home and go to sleep. When in reality, I should be subject to those that have the authority over me to be subject to. Next, we put you in mind to be subject to be, or subject to, rather, principalities and powers to obey magistrates. The word principality translates from a word that many times in the New Testament translates the beginning. It was not so from the beginning of creation is the same word that translates principalities here. What can we infer from that? Sometimes it has reference to a leader. Sometimes it has reference to an origin of something. This word principalities has reference to the chief position of a power or authority. Think about in the United States. We have a pyramid structure of authority. And in our country, we have, and we're very thankful to have, a co-equal three branches of government. But usually, especially in a monarchy, you had a principality. You had the beginning of all authority in that land. In Paul's day, who would be the beginning of the power? Well, it would be Caesar. One individual who had power over all the nation, Paul says, put them in mind to be subject to principalities. The beginning of the authority, the greatest form of authority in the land, but also put them in mind to be subject unto powers. What are the powers? Well, this is plural, and it has reference to all form of powers, and I would describe it as a general framework of governmental authority. In other words, powers could have reference to the laws that are passed by the legislature, and so by extension of that, the legislative branch, when they pass a bill, it's now law over us, and in general, we are to obey the laws that are over us. It could be the Rulings of a judge or a district court, an appellate court, or the Supreme Court. Powers has a general reference to all who are in authority over us. It can have reference to law enforcement officers. It can have reference to the local dictates of those who bear the authority. By the way, homeowners associations don't fit in that. And I really think that homeowner associations are tiny little fascist governments for people who can't make it in politics. But it's another subject for another day. You will never see me living in a homeowner's association. I will live in a tent down by the river before I live in a homeowner's association. 
Like, transport me back to Nazi Germany without the death penalty. And that's your, your average homeowner mentality. Anyway, no HOAs for me. Powers are general frameworks of governmental authority. But also we find, lastly, to obey magistrates. And this, these two words, obey magistrates, come from a single word that simply means to obey, and it has reference to obeying authorities over you. And so the word magistrates, of course, has reference in the English language to judges. And simply what Paul has in mind here is to be generally a person that obeys the law. Young ones, we are to obey the law of the land. This means that we pay our taxes. Nobody likes doing that. I don't like doing that. Peter comes to Jesus and asks, are we to pay our taxes? And Jesus says, cast your hook out there. And he reels in a fish, and in the fish's mouth is what? A coin. Now, I've often wondered about that. Did God just create the coin in the fish's mouth? Or did some poor guy lose a coin in the water and the fish ate it, and Jesus has him reel it in? I don't know. But I do know that Jesus said, reel it in, and he says, Pay your taxes lest they be offended even though you belong to the kingdom of heaven. There were other times that people came to tempt Jesus and they asked the question, these Pharisees and Sadducees and Herodians, do we pay taxes? Do we pay tribute to Caesar or no? And Jesus says, whose inscription is on the coin? Well, Caesar's inscription is on the coin. Well, then render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's and render unto God the things that are God's. We're to be people who obey the laws of the land. The speed limit, I confess to you, 74 and a 70. I don't always obey that perfectly. But we're to be people who obey the law. We're to be law-abiding model citizens. And I've, I've read so many occurrences, so many historic references, rather, to the first century Christians and how they were revolutionary, and yet they never screamed, they never pulled a weapon on anyone, they never came to blows, they said, yes, sir, and no, sir, and they suffered even unto death, being mauled by animals in Colosseums. They were hunted down and persecuted as Christians, and the more they tried to stamp out the fire, the faster and the more fervent it blazed in the Roman world. And they did all of that without ever leading an insurrection. You see, the kingdom of Christ finds its power in Christ, and... As it's persecuted, the more it persecute, is persecuted, the more it grows. It's much like the children of Israel in Egypt. The more they persecuted them, the more they grew, the stronger they became. So much that Egypt was terrified of them and began to execute every male that was born to the nation of Israel. But those early Christians, they turned the world upside down. And they did so without any sort of insurrection or violence or anger or hysteria. We could learn a lot from them. Obeying magistrates simply has reference to being your average model good citizen. Your good citizen. As we think about our responsibility to rulers, and I'm so very thankful that I get to share this passage of Scripture with you today. We're going through a book of the Bible, and we've been considering grace and maturity and discipleship, and this is a very relevant concept, one that, because of the climate of our country, preachers might be inclined to shy away from, but we're going to go right through it. What if the principality or the power or the magistrate is corrupt? 
If the powers that be are sorry, rotten, low-down individuals, do we still obey the laws of the land? If you know a police officer's corrupt and he goes to pull you over, do you keep driving? You know, there are corrupt police officers. There are corrupt politicians. There are corrupt soldiers. Because we live in a fallen world full of sinners. There are corrupt pastors. There are corrupt coaches. There are corrupt teachers. We don't judge all of them. We don't judge the institution by those that are corrupt, but corruption exists on every level of human life. There isn't a single occupation in the world that you haven't read of someone who works in that field being arrested and tried with one crime or another. What if the principality, the power, or the magistrate is corrupt? And the Answer to that, I'm going to give you a question for a question. What if a husband is corrupt? Is a wife any less obliged to the Lord to be in subjection to her own husband? No. If you're in the military and your commander is a buffoon and foolish, are you any less liable to obey their orders? No. That's how you get a court-martial. You're respecting the office and not the person who holds the office. And so when we talk about being subject to principalities and powers, when we talk about a wife being subject to her husband, when we talk about children being subject to their parents, when we talk about soldiers being subject to the officers over them, or you being subject to your employer at work, Even if they're low down and sorry, you respect the office, even if the person who holds the office is a buffoon. We find this principle over and over in Paul's writings. Notice it from Ephesians. Wives, subject unto your husbands as unto the Lord. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Servants to your masters as unto the Lord. Masters, remember, you have a master in heaven. And so the overshadowing principle in all of that is we obey as unto the Lord if it is a real reasonable system of authority over us. Now, what do you do if you work for a terrible employer? You always have the right to quit and to go somewhere else. What if you live in a wicked, godless society and the people that have the rule over you are low-down, despicable human beings, and they oppress and they persecute everything that is right, and they uphold everything that is wicked. You have the right to leave. You have the right to leave. Scripture even includes that in marriage. If you have an abusive partner, if you're married to an unbeliever that abuses you, Or if the person is unfaithful to you, you have the right to what? To leave. You have the right to leave. You can always depart and remain unmarried, and there are reasons that a marriage can come to a lawful end in Scripture. We respect the authority, and we always always have the right to leave. It's important for us to remember as we think about respecting the office and not the person that when Paul wrote these words, put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, Paul was a Roman citizen. Now, Paul was a Jew. Sure, he was a Pharisee before he was quickened by Christ on the road to Damascus. Absolutely. But he was a Roman citizen, born free, 
We see that in the book of Acts where he interacts with a soldier and he tells him that I'm a Roman and he's and a free man. And the Roman says, with great sum bought I my freedom. And Paul says, I was born free. He was in the upper class because they very much had a class system in that day. Paul writes these words when a man named Nero is his king. You think it was good to be in submission or subjection to Nero? Do you know what Nero did to Christians? He was a fool. At one point, he blames the trouble in Rome under his authority on the Christians. He blames a fire on them. Christians don't start fires. They ought not start fires, and those Christians didn't. They were close to the source. They were close to the apostles and the apostolic ministry. He would go on to use Christians as torches in the streets. He would round them up and execute them. It was a terrible time of trouble for Christians, and yet Paul wrote to the Christians to be subject to principalities. When you realize that, it frames your thinking about some of the scoundrels that might bear rule over us from time to time. Now, a final word about being subject to them before we look at when we would be biblically instructed to disobey, because these are two sides of the same coin. This is the double-edged sword, and you need to understand it. I turn to the book of Romans chapter 13 as Paul expands on this concept. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. Why? For there is no power but of God... The powers that be are ordained of God. This does not mean that every person in every position of authority is placed there by God. This isn't some sort of fatalism. Hosea says that they have set up kings but not by me. That means that there are some kings and some in authority that are not there because God put them there. But the office of government, the authority given to powers that be... That power and that authority is ordained of God. That's a strong word, ordained. We have been ordained by God to salvation before the foundation of the world. That's a strong word. The powers that be are ordained of God. That means in the same way that God established the home in the book of Genesis and the church in the ministry of Jesus, government has been ordained of God for your benefit in society. There is no power, no true power but of God. That's why we submit to the powers, because we're submitting to God. That changes the way you think about it. I submit to the powers that be because I'm submitting to God, and He tells me to submit to the powers that be. If I rebel without cause, to whom am I rebelling? I'm rebelling to God. Because God tells me to be subject to the powers that be. We may not like that, but it doesn't make it any less true. And if we're real preachers of the gospel, we have to preach that. Whosoever resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. Does that mean that if we resist the government, or anyone who's ever resisted the government went to hell? No, the damnation that they receive is in the next verse. 
Rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Will thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. He is a minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. He feareth, or he beareth not the sword in vain. He is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. So the damnation that we receive if we become rebels and fight against the powers that be is the damnation, the condemnation that they bring, which is the power of the sword. I would find myself, if I wrestled with a police officer, laying on the ground in my own blood after being beaten and tased and maced and handcuffed. Might I say, if the police ever come and they say, put your hands behind your back, you put your hands behind your back. You say, I'm innocent. Put your hands behind your back and settle it in court. Because all you're going to get is beaten And after you're beaten, you're going to be tried for resisting arrest, even if you did nothing wrong to be arrested for in the first place. And so whatever they say, do. It's a very simple concept. And I submit to the police, the powers that be, because they are instituted of God as an institution. And I don't want to receive the damnation that comes with fighting against the police officers. He's a minister of God, a servant of God to thee for good. Why? Why is he a servant of God to you for good? Because he is a terror unto evil, and when evil is terrorized, good people can live lives without fear of being prey to the wicked. In other words, if the police do their job, I can walk around Big Spring Park and not be afraid of being mugged. My wife and children can play downtown and feed the ducks and feed the birds and run from the geese and all the things that we do at Big Spring Park without fear of being mugged or beaten or assaulted or kidnapped because the government is a terror to evil. And it is a necessary and good institution in the world. And because of that, Christians are to epitomize what it means to be subject to the powers that be not only for wrath, but also for conscience sake. In other words, I know that's what God expects of me, and I don't want a guilty conscience about it. Because of that, we pay tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to who custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor, owe no man anything but to love one another. For he that loveth one another hath fulfilled the law. And so we are to do what? We are to obey the powers that are over us. We're to be subject to them. There's an interesting example of Paul's interaction with the government in the book of Acts. There are many good examples of Paul's interactions with the government in the book of Acts, but I couldn't help but think of this one this morning as I was meditating on today's subject with you. Paul says, as he is before the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 23, I have lived in all good conscience before God unto this day. And Ananias, the high priest, commanded them that stood by him to smite him on the mouth. Paul says, I've lived in good conscience. Ananias says, punch him in the face. And what does the guy that's standing there do? Pops him right in the nose. Punches him in the mouth. I don't know about you, but I think any red-blooded man, when you get punched in the face, you're not going to respond with, God bless you. No, if I get punched in the face, I'm pretty hot about it. I'm not too happy to get punched in the face. There's that instant split-second reaction where you see red and you think, that makes me angry, right? Am I the only one here? Hello, is this thing on? 
You're not happy when somebody punches you in the face. And so Paul blurts out, thou whited wall, God will smite thee. He was angry. The people that stood by him said, oh, you revile the high priest? Paul says, I didn't know he was the high priest. For it is written, thou shalt not speak evil of the ruler of thy people. $10 says you don't hear that verse quoted very often. $20 says you don't want to put it into practice. Thou shalt not speak evil of the ruler of thy people. That's a quote from the Old Testament, which also tells us not to revile the gods. Revile the gods? You mean that I'm not to make fun of Buddha and Mohammed? And it's kind of an interesting thing to think about. That's another subject for another day. But the Old Testament says that. You're not to revile the gods or the ruler of your people. Paul says, I wish not, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it is written, Thou shalt not speak evil of the ruler of thy people. In other words, he says, Sorry, I didn't know. I didn't know. I would have reacted like Paul. So after considering our responsibility to rulers, there's a couple of shorter comments that we want to, or topics that we want to consider today before we bring our thoughts to a close. First of all, when is civil disobedience biblical? And second, or last of all, rather, how we enact real change in the world. And we'll try to be brief so we can cover all the points that we want to consider. As we think about civil disobedience, remember, with rules come exceptions to rules. With rules come exceptions. And the Bible has many rules that have exceptions. No man can come unto me. That's a rule. What's the exception? Except the Father which has sent me draw him. And I'll raise him up again at the last day. That's the exception. No man can come unto Christ, and we suddenly think all is lost, except the Father which has sent me draw him. There's grace. Rules and exceptions. With rules often comes, uh, come exceptions, and to this principle, this is not an exceptional case. <laughs> to the rule of we obey, that rule comes with many exceptions. Examples of this, in brief, exceptions to the rule, when do we disobey? We sang a hymn today, the God that was in the olden time is just the same today. And if you paid attention to those lyrics, there was one exception to the rule that I didn't include in my outline to share with you today. And it was when Daniel refused to obey men, he not, would not bow down to men, and he was thrown in the lion's den... That was one example of that. The three Hebrew boys that refused to bow down to the colossal image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up is another example of that. But there are three examples that I wanted to share with you today. Examples of civil disobedience that God blessed that were in conjunction with His Word. First example, Acts chapter 5. In the book of Acts, chapter 2, you have this great in-gathering on the day of Pentecost. 3,000 joined the church that day and were baptized. It must have taken those 12 men hours upon hours to baptize all of those people. I wish we had 5,000 to baptize in the Flint River today. They began to preach the gospel publicly, and it was a big to-do. They heal a man coming into the temple. But anytime the gospel begins to have amazing results in a culture, you find Satan and his minions beginning to start the kickback. 
They begin to persecute the apostles. They begin to threaten the apostles. They arrest them. They threaten them. They're let out of jail. And the apostles go out and preach again. Verse 28 of Acts 5, Did we not straightly command you that you should not teach in this name? Did we not tell you not to do this? Now, had they been saying not to teach in the name of some false teacher, they should have been obeyed. But this isn't the name of some false teacher. This is in the name of Christ. You have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine. Would to God we'd fill Madison County with our doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Why? Because they tried Jesus. In other words, the Sanhedrin says, you're, you're making us terrified that people are going to convert to this man and they're going to come in here and they're going to kill us because we had him killed. Truth be told, that's not what the disciples would have done. What the disciples would have done is to preach the gospel to them. They weren't going to revenge his blood upon them. They would have tried to convert him to their way. Peter and the other apostles answered, We ought to obey God rather than men. Oh yeah, you commanded us not to preach, but we're not going to obey you because we're going to obey God. In other words, when the powers that be command you to do something that is contrary to God's word, you are under no obligation to God to obey. At the same time, when you are forbidden by the powers that be to do things that God commands you to do, you are under no obligation to obey because you ought to obey God rather than men. Now, Peter got the impression of that, that, all right, I've got a sword. When they come to try to arrest Jesus, I'm going to take my sword and I'm going to chop the ear off the side of the guy's head. And Jesus told him, put your sword up, Peter. They that live by the sword shall die by the sword. That same Peter would be crucified upside down willingly without fighting because he considered it an honor to suffer for the name of Christ. We ought to obey God rather than men. Another example of civil disobedience in conjunction in accord with the will of God. Exodus chapter 1. To summarize, the children of Israel are in Egypt. They have grown. Joseph and the patriarchs have died. You know, they're over in Egypt because the brothers were jealous and sold Joseph into bondage. But God had a purpose for him being in Egypt. He interprets Pharaoh's dreams of seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine. He enables Egypt, the superpower, to prepare for the times of famine. Joseph is promoted to second in command over all Egypt. And here come his brothers down to Egypt to buy food to live. He reveals himself to them. Jacob, who thought Joseph was dead, comes back or comes to Egypt to be reunited with Joseph. It's a great reunification. And those patriarchs settle in Goshen and they live there until the day of Exodus. Exodus chapter 1, Joseph and all these men die. The kind Pharaoh to them dies. There arises a Pharaoh that doesn't know Joseph and doesn't fear Joseph's God. And they begin to afflict the people of Israel. They force them into slavery. They put taskmasters over them to beat them, to afflict them, 
But the more that they afflicted them, verse 12, the more they multiplied and grew, and they were grieved because of the children of Israel. And so they made them serve with rigor, with hard bondage, mortar and brick, and in all manner of service in the field. They made them their slaves. But remember, the more they afflict them, the more they grow. So what does Pharaoh say? We'll keep the women, but we're afraid of the men. And so every Hebrew boy that is born, you have to execute, slay him, cast him in the water and put him to death. It's amazing that before the coming of Christ and before the delivery from Egypt, the two major moments of redemption in the entire Bible, you have the mass execution of children. Perhaps it's that Satan understands what's happening and he does everything in his power, the most extreme efforts to slay those that are the most vulnerable. Which is why we, all, we always ought to be voices for those who have no voices. We ought to be those who protest things such as abortion and to decry it as the greatest sin of our age and to never be a part of it. He commands the midwives, listen to what he says, when you do the office of a midwife, when you see them upon the stools, if it be a son, you shall kill him. If it be a daughter, then shall she live. Imagine being in the profession of being a midwife in this day and being commanded to kill half the babies that are born. By the way, abortion is not health care. It's the exact opposite of that. I just want to say that. People say, you know, health care rights for women. That's not health care rights. That's sin, it's evil, it's murder. Health care isn't killing someone. Health is the opposite of death. That's death care. And it ain't care. It's not good grammar, but it's true. When you see a baby born, you kill it if it's a male. The midwives, the midwives feared God. And did not as the king of Egypt commanded, but saved the men children alive. The king called the midwives and said, why have you done this thing? And have saved the children. And the midwife says, oh, these Hebrew women, they're so lively. They deliver these babies and run off before we can get there. <laughs> That's not what happened. They lied to Pharaoh. Now, this brings in an interesting dilemma when is lying acceptable? Because thou shalt not bear false witness. These women lied to Pharaoh to hide these babies. Therefore, God dealt well with the midwives, and the people applied and waxed very mighty. And it came to pass that the midwives feared God that he made them houses. God blesses these women in an amazing way, because they hid the babies and lied to Pharaoh. That is an interesting dilemma to try to navigate through in Scripture, and it happens a few times. What's another occurrence of that? Think about Rahab the harlot in the book of Joshua. These spies come into Israel. Why they go to this woman's house who was a harlot to stay the night, I do not know. Don't be there. Don't go there. Maybe it was inconspicuous. They go stay here. The king of Jericho, the powers that be, send 
people to Rahab, bring forth the men that are come to thee, which are entered into thine house, for they be come to search out all the country. The woman took the two men, this is Joshua 2, and hid them and said thus, There came men unto me, but I wist not whence they were. And it came to pass about the time of the shutting of the gate, that it was dark, that the men went out. <laughs> Pursue after them quickly, you shall overtake them. Always laugh at that statement. They went that away. They went over there. Run, chase them, you'll find them. In reality, the men are up on a roof, hidden behind the flax. She disobeyed. She disobeyed the powers that be because the powers that be were doing something contrary to God's word, which would have, his will in that day would have been for them to take Canaan's land and she fears God more than she fears men. What are some examples of that in our more contemporary society? Those that hid the Jews during the Holocaust. In eighth grade, we had to read the diary of Anne Frank and to learn the ending of that. It's just heartbreaking because you feel so attached and close to the characters to know that those people died, executed by a wicked regime. Think about the Underground Railroad that helped slaves escape. Slavery was wrong, and they helped them escape. There are examples of this. Over and over, I, I know for a fact that there's a brother here in our church that used to smuggle the gospel of John into Islamic countries. That was civil disobedience, but it was obedience to God, and it was acceptable to God. Civil disobedience is biblical when you're commanded to do that which is sin, or you're commanded not to do that which is right. Lastly, how do we enact change? Because no message is complete without an application. We're going to hit these quickly because we've got about four minutes. First, remember, remember that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. That means that the weapons that the church has to impact society around it are not metal swords, metal spears, metal shields, pistols, revolvers, semi-automatic rifles. Tanks and bullets and jets and bombs. As a side point, this is why we absolutely decry the merger of church and state. Why? Because when church and state merges, state begins to enforce the doctrine of whatever church is holding the state, and generally that ends up very, very poorly for those who rebaptize, such as ourselves. We enact change, remembering, first of all, that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, 2 Corinthians 10.4. We have different weapons. Second, as we think about our weapons, our offense in the armor of God, Paul tells us the only offensive weapons that we have are the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God and prayer, might I tell you that the Word of God and prayer from the body of Christ will do far more to impact America today than all of the screaming and antics and anger and hysteria and even violence that might spring into our culture. The Word is the sword of the Spirit. It's a weapon. And we take it and we turn the world upside down as we fill Jerusalem with our doctrine. Those are both statements from Acts, one from 16, one from chapter 5. 
We turn the world upside down. As we think about our offensive weapon being the word, I remind you of John the Baptist. John the Baptist goes before Herod because Herod is wrong. He's taken his brother's wife to be his own. And John goes to him and he says, It is not lawful for you to have this woman as your wife. What does John do? He uses the offensive weapon, the word of God. He preaches the word to Herod. Well, that sounds like it all worked out great. They all lived happily ever after. Wrong. What happened to John? He was arrested for that. And eventually, he was beheaded for that. But he utilized the weapon. The last thing we'll consider as we hit these one, two, three, very quickly, what happens when the government doesn't heed the counsel like with John the Baptist? We'll get there. Thirdly, number one, we utilize our, we remember our weapons. Number two, we remember that our offense is the word of God. Number three, we utilize our rights, whatever they may be in our particular nation. Twice in the book of Acts, Paul, who considered himself a stranger and a pilgrim and no part of Rome, a member of the kingdom of God into which he was translated, utilized his rights as a Roman citizen. He was beaten, and he says, Do you beat me uncondemned being a Roman? Oh, we didn't know you were a Roman citizen. We can't beat a Roman uncondemned. Paul utilized his rights. In the book of Acts chapter 25 and verse 11, Paul utilized his rights as a Roman citizen and said what? I appeal to Caesar. You had the right as a Roman to appeal to Caesar. He utilized his rights. And in fact, the matter was, when they actually began to investigate him, they said he'd probably been let go. But Paul wanted to appeal to Caesar, so Paul ended up in Rome because God had told him, you're going to preach in Jerusalem, then you're going to preach in Rome. And so Paul had a caravan trip by military armed escort from Jerusalem to Rome because he appealed unto Caesar. He didn't care about his freedom. He cared about preaching the gospel. He appeals to Caesar. He utilized his rights. Might I encourage you to utilize your rights as Americans? And if people watch, as often do, from Great Britain or from Kenya or from the Philippines, wherever it is that they watch from, utilize your rights as citizens in your land. That's biblical. Fourth, how do we enact change? We pray for our leaders. Let me just tell you that you will accomplish more as the body of Christ praying for the people who have authority over you than you will in complaining about them on social media. And I'm very guilty of that. I got locked out of Twitter a couple of weeks ago for 12 hours. I was so angry when I got back on, I threw grenades at them for a solid week. I would tag them, Twitter support, in every tweet that I made. I really wanted them to just kick me off, get me out of here. But I would be a whole lot more successful in changing things in the world if I would simply pray for them. And, and those prayers are not necessarily the imprecatory prayers of the Psalms. Lord, break their teeth. You know, that's one of the prayers in the Psalms, Lord, break their teeth. There comes a time when that's appropriate. I don't know when that time is, but I'm to pray for them. Dear God, give them wisdom. Dear God, change minds and hearts. Imagine what a great thing it would be if all of the wicked people in our government in this country suddenly came to see their sin and see the Word of God. What a change that would be in our country. 
We can pray. We can pray. And the one who hears prayers answers, if it be His will. Lastly, and by the way, you get that from 1 Timothy chapter 2, we should pray for kings and all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. Lastly, what if government doesn't heed scriptural counsel? What can we do? Well, that's when we remember that the one who has authority over the government will judge. You and I don't have the power to go into Washington and fire everyone there when we're not happy with them. But we have to remember that government is a power that is instituted of God. They are the what of God to us for good? Do you remember the word from Romans 13? It starts with an M. So you wouldn't want to say it? The minister. If I don't do my job as a minister, to whom am I accountable? To the one that called me. If they don't do their jobs the way God has called them to do their jobs and terrorize evil and promote good, which by the way, when we're changing the genders of little kids, that's promoting evil and shunning good. Because in the beginning, God made them male and female. When they don't do what is right, remember that though they are over us, God is over them. And God will judge when it is His time to do so. I close with a simple reading of Romans chapter 12, verse 19. Verse 18 says, If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Amen. We've been talking about that for an hour. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves. There's a lot of that in our world today. But rather give place unto wrath. That means to whom the individual, the being that has the right to wrath, you give place to him. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in doing so, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome with evil. Overcome evil with good. The entire last point that we've been sharing with you is summarized in those words. When government doesn't do what they ought to do, you remind them that they answer to a God who is alive and well, and He will judge. Remember that when you feel helpless in our country today.